All right. Well, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Over the last several weeks, we've kind of gone through some different aspects of, of God's will. We started off in delighting in God's will, where we exposed some of the lies that are often associated with the Christian life. We, we went through that. And then we, for the next couple of weeks, we then went through follow-through. We have an under, we've come to an understanding that follow-through requires us to be ready when God calls, to believe what He's telling us to be true, and to be willing to follow through with the instruction that He has given to us throughout His Word. And last week, we kind of talked about why we should be confident in performing that which God has called us to, to do, to walk in God's will. Why should we be confident in that? Well, we saw that the reason why we should be confident is that we have, the, we have the promise of God's presence, we have the promise of God's victory, we have the promise that God will provide our needs in and throughout His will for us. We have that confidence that He will be there, we will be successful, and that He will provide our needs. But this week, we're going to be kind of asking the question about how to be confident Many of you may be thinking, well, that really sounds good. I love the idea that we can have God's, God's presence, His prosperity, His, His provisions, His victory, but I'm just not real confident in that, that He will be there. I'm not real confident that all of my needs will be met. I do lack confidence in that. Where does this confidence come from? That's a good question. Well, as I kind of gave you a little bit of a taste of this message last week, I believe the source of our confidence is grounded in your identity. I believe we live in a world where we have an identity crisis. I believe that many of God's children are even victims of identity theft when it comes to who they really are. This morning we'll start with the story of a small boy, not quite three years old, but as he skipped down the imposing hallways, passing up armed servicemen, some of the best of the best, they took no notice of the child as he ran past their, as he ran past their assigned posts. The boy passed several staff members. He flew, by the, he flew by the secretary's desk, and the boy didn't even acknowledge the secretary waving at him as he passed by because he was so intent on his destination. And passing the secretary's desk, he is faced again with an armed guard at the door that he is wanting to enter. And as he goes to approach the door, the guard, the guardman makes no attempt to hinder his progress. We have this three-year-old boy, he reached up and he opened the doorknob, opening the door, and he skips across the carpet of the Oval Office and jumps into the lap of the President of the United States, John F. Kennedy. That's John John. Now you have a situation here. Now the, influ now the influential cabinet members that are in the office with him, they have to wait to continue their conversation as the president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, and his son, John John, exchange good morning hugs and kisses. Such a great contrast between a three-year-old boy and the most powerful influential man in the world, the President of the United States. You have, you have the most the powerful man in the world, and you have a little boy who can stroll past all of the staff members, the security guards, and then jump into the lap 
of the President of the United States. Now, could you imagine someone objecting to John John? As he was to be running through the hallways and, and jumping into, the, into uh, his, his dad's lap, can you imagine someone stopping him saying, stop, you just can't come barging in here like that and jump onto the lap of the President of the United States? Don't you know who he is? Who do you think you are? And probably with a confused look and then with a very confident grin, he would probably answer his challenger and say, that's my daddy. That's my daddy, and I am his son. And that's why he had the confidence in running through the White House. He knew who his daddy was, and he knew who he was in relation to that man. He was the son of the President of the United States. And he was confident in doing so. And that's why he could go through the halls, run through the White House, straight to his daddy, the president, because he was his son and he knew it. The tragedy of modern Christianity today, I believe, is that it is, is rooted in our ignorance to who we truly are in Christ. Who are we in Christ? If you come to think about it, after everything that Jesus Christ has done to make us holy and acceptable before God, dying on the cross, burying our sins so we can be accepted by God, and then only that raising from the dead to give us his life that we can experience day in and day out, after doing all of that, many of us still thrash around with doubt and wondering if God even hears our prayers. We wonder and doubt whether we're even worthy to be used of God or not. We struggle with simply believing that God could truly love me and accept me. For some of us, we think, how could God love me and know everything about me? How do you think God sees you? Ask ourselves that question this morning. How do you think God sees you? When he looks at you, what does he say? Who does God say that you are? It's a good question. Well, when many people are asked this question concerning who they are or who God says that they are, many times the responses are, very, are really quite pitiful. It says some of the answers are, well, I'm a being who is a sinner who tries not to sin but ends up sinning. You know, God must see me as a hypocrite because I've learned to play the Christian role very well, but I'm not truly and fully yielded to God in every area of my life. I think he feels sick when he sees me, disgusted and disappointed. He is sickened at me. Now, this is what we believe about how God sees his children. It's going to be very difficult to walk in faith confidently and to pursue him. If that's the way that we truly believe that God sees us as his children, then we're going to have a very difficult time trusting him to do what he promises that he will do. It's going to be very difficult to apply verses like Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly or with confidence to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy 
and find grace to help in our time of need. If we see that God is disgusted with us, how confidently can we approach his throne? But does God really think that way about us? So I think this confidence issue is a matter of identity. I think this confidence issue in the Christian life is a matter of who you believe that you are. So the question is, I want to ask you this morning, who are you? But not only that, but how do you determine who you are? How does God see you? Who does God say that you are? Well, the first thing we're going to look at this morning is who do you say that you are? Now, we tend to identify ourselves in many different ways. I mean, the truth about our identity is a person does not have any identity except in relationship to someone or something. You have no identity except through a relationship with something or someone. Well, think about this. If someone were to ask you, well, who are you? Well, okay, well, my name's Billy Bartlett, and I've already identified myself based on the relationship to the name that my parents give, gave me. My name's Billy. I'm a pastor. I'm a martial artist. I'm a musician. I'm a father. I am a husband. I am a son. I am a brother. Every single one of those things is in relation to someone or something. So we find our identity based on the relationships that we do have in the various areas of our lives. But because we don't have an identity apart from a relationship, that's why we practically will latch on to anything that we possibly can in our, in, our, um, in our struggle, in our desperate need to discover who we are. We want to know who we are. We want to have some sort of identity. And many people will determine their identity through so many different things, their appearance, their occupation, their abilities, family relationships, friends, denominational affiliations, and many other different things. That's where they will, they will root and ground their identity. Well, the only problem with these things is that the common denominator in all of these are temporal. They're not forever. They're not eternal. Take, take, the, take the person who carries their identity as their sole, their, their sole source of their identity in their appearance. Some of us don't have to live very long, and some of us have already experienced that the way we looked at age 20 is not so much the way we looked at 65 or 40. Things change. And if your identity is rested in how you looked 20 years ago, and you no longer look that way anymore, then you've completely lost your identity. What about your occupation? Well, I'm a businessman. Well, if that is the sole source of your identity, what happens when you lose your job or whenever you retire? Oh, you've just lost your identity. I am a parent. I'm a mother. I am a father. What happens whenever your children grow up and they move out and they start living their own adult lives? Many parents, after their children graduate and move out of the house, because of their core source of their identity was being a father and a mother to that child while they were living in there, they don't know what to do with themselves. You see, a lot of marriages fall apart after that because they just don't know who they are anymore. Because the core, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that being a good mother and a good father is, is not a good thing but it should not be the core source of your identity because it is temporal, temporary. So there are many things that we can try to latch onto to try to find out and figure out who we are. 
And it is true that you, you, you don't have any identity apart from the relationships of someone or something. So it's not grounded in these things that are temporal, but also some people tend to go to other people's opinions about themselves in order to find out who they are, to gain their identity. They want to know what somebody else thinks about them. And they rest their identity based on how people think they are. And we see that a lot of times. You, you, can, you, can, you can point them out on Facebook, right? I call that, I call that compliment fishing, you know, where they'll post something about how self-loathing they are about themselves in hopes that someone will, will jump in there and then and build them back up because that's where, really where they are grounding their... Um, and grounding their identity is in basically what people think about them. And they need that. But also the opinions, think of the athlete. If he was to ground his identity and what people thought about him, well, as long as he's making the good plays, they'll throw him a parade. But as soon as he throws a game, they won't let him live that down for the rest of his life. You ask a husband, does your wife love you? Yeah, she loves me. Does she like you today? Well, no, not today. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> so our identity should never be grounded in what people think about us. Now, understand that other people's opinions are important, but not as a core source of who we are. Not the core source of our identity. We need something a lot more solid, a lot more firm than people's opinions. And if these usual struggles for identity that we all experience going throughout our lives, if that's, not, if that's not enough, millions of people are labeled with an identity that focuses on their greatest weakness and their greatest failures. You've heard this one. Hi, my name is John. Hi, John. <laughs> I am an alcoholic. My name is Stan. I am a homosexual. My name is Casey and I am a drug addict. Now, why don't we do this with all of our other failures and our shortcomings? You know, I tend to struggle with a critical spirit sometimes, but I don't introduce myself as Billy the criticism-holic. One, I just, I just, I, I, I've refused to define myself by my failures, but yet we label, and we get these labels on us, and that begins to identify who we are. Now, I want you to understand that the danger in doing this, this is what you, this is what you call settling your identity based on your behavior. I want you to understand even your behavior is not a solid foundation upon which we should draw our core source of identity. Because what happens with our, with our, um, when we do that with our, um, with our behavior is that when we take a label like one of these that we just talked about, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a homosexual, or I'm a drug addict, if we take that as the core source of our identity, it becomes solidified in our minds that that is who we are. And if we have accepted the behavior or the desires of our heart as our, the core source of our identity, then it's automatic that we assume that that cannot be changed. And therefore, it becomes a permanent part of who we are. And what happens is, is that very thing that we are using as a core source of our identity is the one thing that Christ wants you to set, is the one thing that Christ wants to set you free from. But yet it's become a source of your identity. And whenever we allow the, our behavior or the desires of our heart to become the core source of our identity, 
If one was to speak against that to you, or to help you get out of that, or, or, or to help in some way, that's why you would see someone get extremely offended because they think that you're not, you're not addressing their behavior, but you're actually addressing them personally. Our behaviors and our desires are not a solid foundation upon which we need to draw our identity. So people's opinions, no, it's not good enough. In our greatest failures, certainly we don't want to identify ourselves with that. But however, this may be how we tend to identify ourselves, but is this who God says that we are? Is this truly who God says that we are? You know, regardless of what we say we are, who, who we say we are, the truth about who you are is what God says about you. And the only way that we can know if what, if, if what we are saying about ourselves is true or false is we must confirm it with what God says about you and what he says about me. So where do we go for that? Well, we go to God's word, right? So this is what we can go through, all these things, these various things, this is what we can go through whenever we're trying to answer the question, who we are. But I'm really not so concerned with who I say I am. I want to know what God says. Who does God say that I am? Who does God say that you are? And how do we determine these things? Well, first of all, I want us to understand that from God's point of view, there's only two types of people. There's only two types, and you know, you know this, you've heard this. You're either saved or you're not saved. But your identity li lies in who your daddy is. <laughs> in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So from God's perspective of things, whenever he's looking down on us, we're going to fall into one of those two categories. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You are in Adam or you are in Christ. Well, to be in someone, it means that he is your family head. Either Adam is your family head or Christ is your family head. And in such, the head of the family, he leaves his name, his nature, and his inheritance and destiny. And whoever the head is can only pass on to you what he has himself. So what do we have in Adam? So what do we have in Adam? We see here that Paul contrasts in Adam, we all die, and in Christ we are made alive. Also in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, we see what we have in Adam. It says, therefore, as through one man's offense, that would be Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Skip down to verse 19. It says, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. This is the inheritance that we have in Adam. If we are in Adam, this is the thing for which we can look forward, is death and sinfulness. When God looks down at us from his perspective, we are in Adam and in Christ. But every human being who's ever been born has been born in Adam. We are born with the same nature, the same inheritance, and the same destiny that Adam possessed since the fall. We are born spiritually dead with a sinful human nature, and unless something changes, that will remain our identity forever. So we are either in Adam or in Christ. 
Now, to be in Christ is completely contrasting what it means to be in Adam. Now, in Adam, we see that death and condemnation come. But it says, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, which is Adam, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, which was Christ, many will be made righteous. Now, if you are in Christ, you will be made righteous. You are made righteous. Let me ask you a question. How righteous? How righteous are you? How many of you believe you at least have the righteousness of Billy Graham by a show of hands? All right, nobody. Okay. How many of you believe you at least have the righteousness of the Apostle Paul? Nobody. Okay. How many of you believe that you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Raise your hand. I see a few more. And that is true. If you are in Christ, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are the righteousness of God. You, are, you have been made righteous. When we are born again, I want you to understand that we are born with a new nature, a new inheritance, and a destiny that is in Christ. We have the same nature, we have the same inheritance as Jesus Christ does. We are co-heirs to the throne of God as Christ is. So the main issue that we face in this world is with whom do you identify? Do you identify with Adam or do you identify with Christ? If you identify with Adam, then your inheritance is death. If you identify in Christ, then your inheritance is eternal life. But also we want you to understand that this is complete and total identification with Jesus Christ. When you are reborn, whenever you are born of the Spirit of God, by repenting of your sins and trusting in the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary, you have complete identification with Christ. And that happens at the very moment of your spiritual birth. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it tells us this, says, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, Regardless of what the label of the world has put on you, whether you're Jew or Greek or, or slave or free, that doesn't matter. Those labels are to the side. They don't, they don't matter at all. It says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And we have all been made to drink into that one spirit. Complete and total identification. Now, we're not talking about the church ordinance of baptism here, though this is very representative of what, of what happens, of what that signifies. But the word baptize obviously means to dip, it means to submerge. And the Greeks, had a, they used this term when they, were, they would start to dye cloth. If they wanted to be a white piece of cloth to be red, then they would baptize that cloth in the red dye. And what would happen is they would baptize that cloth into the vat of red dye, and it would go in one thing, and then it would come out another. It would come out of that vat, carrying all the characteristics of that which it was baptized into. You see where we're going with this? So therefore, we were in Adam. But once we come to know Christ as our personal Savior, being baptized by the Spirit, we have now been resurrected, carrying the same characteristics as Christ from God's perspective. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed upon all of those who have trusted in His work. That's who we are. That's who we are. 
We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And we are born into the world in Adam, spiritually dead and sinners by nature. And if you're from the 90s, that's naughty by nature. Some of y'all got that. And so we were sinners by nature. And then we hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We trust in him as our personal savior. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit of God baptizes you into Christ. And being baptized with the Spirit is a total identification with Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. So whenever God sees you and God looks at you, he doesn't see the old sinner that you used to be, but he sees the righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ. He sees someone whose blood of his Son has covered and has washed away the sins that we have committed against him. If this has happened, you are no longer in Adam. Your identity no longer lies in Adam, but it lies in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? If you're going to inherit the kingdom of God, guess what? You're going to be righteous in order to do so. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But all of these lists of behaviors that, that Paul is listing out here, he says, that's what you used to be. As such were some of you. But that's not you anymore. But you've been washed You've been sanctified, you've been justified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. We have been made clean. We have been completely been made new. You are a vessel who has been washed clean, fit for the Spirit of God to come live and dwell inside you. That's one of God's children. How completely does the blood of Jesus Christ clean you? How completely righteous can the blood of Jesus Christ make you? Complete? How many sins did the blood of Jesus Christ pay for? Yeah, all of them. Complete and total righteousness. Complete and total identification with Jesus. Complete and total forgiveness and acceptance by God our Father. If this has happened to you, we are no longer in Adam, but you are in Christ. Christ is now your family head. Death is no longer your inheritance, for you have been made alive. You have become the partaker of a divine nature, and your destiny is now heaven. Now, why do we have all of these things? Because you are in Christ. That's why you have all of these things. It's not from any work or any, anything that you've done on your own, but this is because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. He has paid the price. He bled. He shed his blood on the cross of Calvary and that we could be the righteousness of God in him. And if you are in Christ, you are just that, the righteousness of God. You have been made into a new creature, actually into a new creation. What does this say here? Therefore, if anyone is what? In Christ. If you are now identified completely and totally with Christ, completely forgiven, completely and totally accepted by God, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have now become new. 
Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior was not just turning over a new leaf and starting, starting out and trying to do better. Now, this is a brand new life under a brand new master. You are now in Christ. You are no longer in Adam. You are no longer identified in that way, but you are now the son of the living God or a daughter of the living God. You know, I was once in Adam. I was once, without, I was once in Adam without God's spirit, spiritually dead and a guilty sinner. But I want you to understand something this morning. That man is dead. That man is dead and he will never, ever exist again. He died on the cross with, 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 um, with, with Christ and he was buried forever. And I've been resurrected with a new life in Christ Jesus. And that's who I am. We'll no longer allow the life before Christ to identify who I am. I'm identifying myself in Christ. I am now in Christ, a person who possesses the Holy Spirit, spiritually alive and totally forgiven and accepted by God. But notice I want you to understand that this change, this change does not refer to my behavior. This change does not refer to what I have done. This change refers to my identity in Christ. Now that's not to say that this new identity won't bring about new behaviors, which it should, but it's not resting in my behaviors. It's resting in what Christ has done for me and who God says that I am now. It's who God says that I am. You know, the world tells us that we need a good self-image. <laughs> Is that right? It's kind of opposite of what the Bible says, doesn't it? It says, don't think too highly of yourselves and you ought to. But actually, we are called to esteem others higher and better than ourselves. So it's not that we need to seek for a good self-image, but we need a proper self-image. We need a self-image that reflects what God sees in each and every one of us. And I want you to understand if you are here and you are in Adam, you need a proper self-identification that you are in Adam, that you may turn from your wicked ways and turn from your sin and trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ, and gain a new identity in Christ. We need to have an understanding of who we are. We need the proper, the proper self-image. Positive self-image, all of that, that's, that's, if it's not proper, then it's no good. I want what's right. I want what God says. I want to know that who I am. I want to know who God says that I am. And God says that I am his son. I'm identified with his son, Jesus Christ. Now, there's only one way that we can determine our identity. Only one way that it cannot be shaken. One foundation that will never be taken away. And that is, I am a child of the king. I am a child of the king. I believe in only this way that you will ever begin to find true security. True security in what we do. As our musicians make their way forward, let's kind of reflect on the things that we've really learned this morning. If you are a believer of Jesus Christ, which means your sins have been forgiven, and you are a child of God now, when God sees us, I want you to understand he sees you as his child. Totally forgiven. Perfect in his sight. Because Christ has done what he has done. You are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. And he sees you as someone, maybe who's made poor decisions in life, but you are still his child. And God wants you to know and rest who you are in Christ. 
I believe that he would want you to grasp the truth of who you are, that you are his beloved children, even in the midst of our worst failures. You're still in Christ. And you still bear the righteousness of his son, Jesus. I believe until we come to that point, I believe that only then will we have the confidence to come to him during our time of need, that we can boldly approach the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and grace in our time of need. Who needs mercy and grace? Well, we do. I believe only then will we be able to walk in obedience, confidently claiming the promises that he has given us, his presence, his victory, his provisions. So the believer's identity in Christ is not just a side issue. I believe for all of us it is a central issue, and it is central to experiencing the life that Christ would have us to live, to fully experience the life that Christ gives. And if we don't have a firm grip on this issue, I don't believe that we'll have the confidence to go to our God and our Father when we need him the most. Who does God really say you are? If we would just take a little lesson from John John, (laughs) if we rest in who we are in Christ, we can boldly go before the throne of grace. I believe then we can begin to discover the riches and the freedom that we already have in Christ because we are children of the King. That's who you are. Let's stand. Let's have a time of invitation this morning. If the Lord has spoken to your heart and, you, and it's time and you feel like you need to respond in some way, I pray that you will do so now. But as we pray, Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. Father, we're, thank you, we're thankful for all that you have done. We're thankful for who you say that we are. And Father, may our hearts and our minds reflect that proper self-image, Father, how you truly see us. And we may, and may we be confident to live with that proper identity that you have given us. It's in these things we ask. Amen.